Hello, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I interview memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is my friend Annabelle Gerwich. Her new book is called I See You Made an Effort. It's published by Blue Rider Press, and I'm delighted to see you back in town. Oh, it makes me always so happy to see you because you just love books and writers in a way that is makes it just so much fun to talk about, you know, the whole process and just... It's just like, ah, it's just getting together. It's just like the best coffee clutch because I am drinking coffee. I wouldn't be on a book tour if I didn't have a coffee in my hand. How far are you in the tour at this point? Okay, this is what's crazy. I'm only three cities into the tour, but I'm already in another zone. I did this event with Barbara Ehrenreich last night, and she said to me, how come you look so cheerful? I said, oh, it's phony. I'm just, I, I'm just going on coffee. No, I mean, I'm... First of all, you know, the, the book tour thing is, it's like this crazy thing where you just, you know, you're just carving out your time and you're just, you're just out there alone, like Willie Loman-esque. Although, you know, like, like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm so happy I had these like sold out nights in New York. It was amazing. But still, you feel like a little bit like a shoe salesperson. It's a very, it is the hand sell. And there's something kind of, you know, nutty about how old fashioned it is. And something fantastic and something terrible. And, you know, it's, it's both it's all those things. Now, when we first met yeah. about, God, about like eight, nine years ago, yeah. you had just come out with Fired, which was about your experiences about being fired from various jobs. And you also talked to other people and got their sort of sense. Mm -hmm. And this book now, I see you made an effort. It's... Well, I love the bit in the opening about how you say, well, okay, everyone's talking about how 40 is the new 30, and no one's saying that 50 is the new 40, because it isn't. 50 is just 50. Yeah, it's funny, Barbara Ehrenreich said something last night, you know, I, she said, we must stamp out these, you know, as she calls them, brightsiders, these people who try to package everything, you know, with a pink ribbon for women, that's the whole breast cancer thing, and there's this whole, like, aging gracefully thing. So I'm not aging gracefully. I'm aging with a vengeance. To write this book, in a way, my goal, I had a couple of, I, mean, I had a couple of goals. So each chapter in the book, it's, it's, it's a, con, you know, it's a collection of essays and I thought about writing it. I, it took me much longer than I thought. My initial thought, I was going to write it as a narrative of like, my year of, you know, menopause, I don't know, whatever it was. I was going to do like a, a, a year, the the year of 49 to 50. And then I decided not to do that because I was worried that some of the social commentary that I wanted to include in the book wasn't going to mesh with the memoir aspects. I, I was trying to strike this balance and I actually thought that I didn't want the book to, I don't say only be a memoir because memoirs, I don't mean to be reductive in any way of that, but I didn't want my personal story because I've been working in show business for much of my life. I didn't want that story because that story, that my story had a lot of those elements in it, you know, as a narrative, but I wanted that part of my life to be contained and so it wouldn't dominate because I wanted to tell the story of a woman in this time period, in the in the culture we live in, within the youth-obsessed culture, hitting this age, 
and what that means on all these different levels, economically, in terms of the, the family dynamic, in terms of the drumbeat of the, of, the, of the youth culture and the things they try to sell you, all these, the ways that you become invisible. So I felt that I needed to do that as essays because then you wouldn't have, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm, you need to, if you're going to enjoy this book, you need to get caught up in, in my experience of it, but I didn't want people to get caught up in the particulars of my life and my profession. I was worried that that could end up dominating that. So, for instance, in the book, I, I really tried to corral the things that have to do with show business and living in Los Angeles to two chapters. One is called Hollywood Adjacent, because that's sort of like living in the shadow of the 1%, which I live in in Los Angeles. I don't lead a Hollywood life. I lead a very ordinary Los Angelino life, which is in its, in its, its you know, which it has its own identity. But in any case, so do you know what I mean? That was, yeah. it was, it was trying to strike this balance. And that's why I wrote it as essays. Although you are in the show business world, yeah. I think like all but a handful of people in that world, you are just as caught up in, you know, the economic downturn and struggling to make ends meet financially and all of that sort of like basically ordinary middle-class life as anybody who isn't in show business. You know, I've been really fortunate to earn my living as an actor for most of my life. Now I work as a writer primarily. But even within that industry, it's much like every other industry in America. There's been salary compression. There's the, the difference between the top percentage and everyone else has taken a huge hit. I don't earn very much money as an actress anymore. And that also has to do with some age-related mm -hmm. aging out of things. And I do write about that in the book. I write about, you know, I have a little chart of where I stand in the hierarchy of Hollywood. And I am several levels below Starbucks barista, sober companion to a movie star, and deceased former reality star, and sloth. I'm, I'm below all of those things. I really lead much more of a, of a writer's life. Most of my days, I have this writing office. This, I have one of those shared workspaces with a bunch of really great writers, with uh, Jillian Lauren, who wrote Some Girls, Heather Havrilski, Josh Wolfshank, Janelle Brown, Karina Chicano. Uh, it's like a bunch of us. Uh, Dave Edgar's little brother, Toph. We have this office. It's a writing office. And that's where I'm, I am most of my days now. And and like most people actually in Los Angeles, even though it's a company town, I'm, uh, I, I'm on the commute with son and, you know, I'm, you know, at the supermarket. I'm not... I'm definitely not lead, leading that Hollywood life. But all those things that I think affect people and women in that age range, I wanted to write a more populist book than I felt have been those books that have been out there, like um, Anna Quinlan's books. And even Nora Ephron, who's sort of, you know, this... I mean, I, I have to say, I read Nora Ephron first when I was about 40, and I was like, I don't really get... I hate my neck. Then I read it again before I started this book, and I was like, I get it. Oh, my God, I love it. I mean, she's a, a brilliant writer, and I always loved her writing. But those books, I didn't get until I got closer to that. I aged into it. I wanted to write a more populist book than even those two books that would be reflective of our generation, or at least my generation, because I'm older than you. Not very uh, much. Not very much, but still. But I wanted to write something that was reflective of people who have weathered the economic downturn, who who are facing, heading into middle age, 
woefully underfunded for any possible retirement in the future. And I think that that puts us in a very particular spot where we're, you know, stretched in all directions and trying to stay employed. I've got a teenager who needs things, braces. He needs military school probably at this point. I'm just kidding. But uh, then I, I've got parents who are aging. You know, you're just stretched. It's called the sandwich generation. And that's something, I don't know, I just wasn't seeing reflected in in in, in books right now. So within that range, you get to talk about a variety of different topics. When you talk about dealing with an adolescent son. Yes. And Horrible. Uh, talking about trying out meditation. Horrible, terrible. <laughs> All of it bad, none of it good. I'm just kidding. Go, going into, you know, there's that chapter about going into a department store. Even and worse. being bombarded yeah. with like the, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, uh, yes. we I'm, all have to make these decisions about like, oh my God, don't, you know. $200 skin cream or whatever. Okay, so, you know, when, uh, that, uh, that, that was, of course, a, uh, compilation that, that chapter represents a number of visits to the department store and realizing at this age that there is just this entire billion dollar industry that is focused on getting particularly women, although it's men as well, but all of us at this age to purchase this bullshit crap stuff that they are calling, there's one, there's a product out there called Hope in a Jar. I mean, that is just, it's, that people, that's criminal. I mean, it's criminal to sell somebody that, right? You know, I mean, it's, my God. And these things cost hundreds, I mean, uh, hundreds of dollars. And, you know, they, I mean, it, I do say that it does give you hope that someone with a liberal arts degree is earning some money working for a cosmetics company because the the way the adjectives and adverbs that they combine, the restorative, reparative, replenishing, plumping, college, I mean, does it do any of these things? We don't there's no one, there's no evidence that any of this stuff works, but it seduces you. And it, and, and they know that, you know, you just, you, they, they tap into that desire, that fountain of, to find that fountain of youth. I, I think, I would speculate, you could just place dollar bills on your face. It would have the same effect, you know. But it's, it's, it's really hard. I, I think it's hard to be a person, to be aging in a, in a youth-obsessed culture where you start to feel invisible. And that, you know, there's, there is a lot in the book about invisibility. Well, okay, so here's an example, though. I realized, we look at my industry, the Nielsen ratings, they only call people from 18 to 49. I'm aged out of the Nielsen ratings. I picked up a magazine, not that fashion magazines are reflective of the entire scope of our society, yet what it said on the cover was looking good at 20, 30, 40, and beyond. Like, oh, what? they can't even say my age now? What? And it, 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 was, it was, oh, my God, they're sending me to the great beyond already. It's time to go to Carousel. Time. time. Oh, my gosh. Logan's Run, one of the great all-time movies. Soylent, I, I was, I, I love sci-fi movies. We talked about that yeah. before. So, you know, I actually get a chance to work in Soylent Green and Logan's Run in the book because those were those movies where, you know, overpopulation and uh, was and also strained economics were those dystopian futuristic movies where you can't have old old aging people. And now I feel like I'm I'm living in that actual universe. You come from a comedic background, and there's always been a comedic element to the writing. But I think particularly in this book, it feels like as much as you're treating this with humor, there is a real emotional and empathetic i mean these are you're tapping into obviously you're tapping into genuine anxieties that a lot of people are feeling and you, although you make 
humorous observations along mm-hmm. the way, you're also dealing with them very sincerely and very seriously. You know, listen, I really appreciate that you see that in the writing. This this endeavor of this book, uh, I had just a little bit of a different idea for myself. I don't know, maybe it's re- it's reflective in the writing that I did not start this book in the way my other writings have been, which has been primarily, except for the pieces that I do, you know, essays for hire for for different outlets. But, you know, I started out writing for NPR commentaries that were meant to be spoken. And then the other two books were both developed um, performing the material really for comedic audiences. Although I, I always, I'm always trying to, again, like put my experience into the cultural zeitgeist. So I'm always trying to have, you know, this social conscience in it. But this book I wrote to be read. To me, the, the writing... It was a different process of writing, and it was just different writing, you know. And I, I'm actually adapting it for the stage, and it's harder than I expected because it didn't start out to be performed. And my goals with this book, I was trying to give myself permission at least to not just be, you know, funny. I mean, first of all, I don't even know. It's just a weird thing, you know, funny, what's comedy? It, you know when something's funny and you know when something hits your sense of humor. And I think that there are some people who have really quantified this. I've never done that kind of research. I just know what I like and what make, what cracks me up. And I think what always makes me laugh are the contrasts. The contrast between reality and self-delusion. You know, I write in the book that when I I'm at this concert with my son, and I suddenly realize how invisible I am. That I really should have made that realization 15 years earlier, <laughs> and that I was just really in denial that I thought that I was still hip and cool, and and uh, that that people younger than me could see me. And I and I had this moment of like, oh wow, I'm realizing this now, but it was really happening for a while, and I didn't know it. And I, I find that kind of thing like I know to me that's funny, and I know what's funny to me, but it is. I think that's one of those things where. You know, the humor thing, it's like, wow. I don't actually try to, I'm not trying to write to be funny. I'm just trying to write the way I see it, which is always, I always, I usually see sort of the dark side of things first. And then the ironic sides, I like satire, but it is a weird thing, though. And you're also allowing yourself to be, I think, pretty much in almost every case, the butt of the joke. That, as you say, it's like, you're hitting the realization that, you know, you're not hip, you're, you're not, you're hitting the realization. Yes, that, well, yeah. yeah, I mean, the thing or is, that, is that, you yeah. know, I, I, okay, I could say a couple things. There are a couple things I'm not interested in writing about. So one thing I don't write about is celebrity culture. I mean, I, I write about my interfacing with that strange world, but not about people, celebrities in general. I'm not, in, I'm not interested in reading about that. I'm not in, I don't, there's like, there's no, stories about famous people in there. I, I What I write about is how you realize that you can be in an industry with people where you also had started out together where you'll see people at parties and people will be friendly and you know that 
you won't be making those plans you say you're going to make. You won't be having that dinner. Your kids won't vacation together. They're never coming to your house. There's, you know, so I'm writing about class and status, but not actual, I mean, I'm just not interested in, in Hollywood, Hollywood culture. So I don't write about that. And the other thing I don't write about is I, I'm not interested in like a kind of put down humor. So I do think genuinely though that I am the butt of the joke because I am not standing outside of this issue or really mostly any issues from any vantage point of being such a a evolved person that I can say, I have eschewed all worry about aging. No, I have bought those creams. I, I, I go to a rheumatologist. Now I have arthritis in my hands. I mean, this is, I'm in it. Yeah, I'm, I'm living it and I, and I can't, I only can only have compassion for other people. So really, I am the target of my humor because I, I just don't, I think otherwise it would be like I was, uh, I had a judgment or was, you know, looking down on other people. Jane Goodall could perhaps do that, but I believe Jane Goodall is as close to sainthood as you can get. And she probably just thinks of the silly people who are doing the silly things that aren't the incredible important work she does as probably she probably doesn't give them a thought because she's that evolved. I'm not I would never be Jane Goodall. Now you've collaborated with your husband on a book and a theatrical production before. So he kinda knows <laughs> yes. that his life is as much is as much as an a open fodder, book. yes. Yeah. Well but, you know that, But with a you know yeah. with a teenage son. Well, okay. So first of all, I do write about our son, who is a teenager, which by very definition means he hates me and is completely uninterested in anything I have to say or write. So I feel pretty secure in saying he will never read this material. He's just not interested. If mom's doing it, I can't even make eye contact with him anymore. He's 16. We're right in the throes of, uh, you do not, I am really invisible to him or he would like me to be complete. He would like it if I disintegrated into into thin air, if I evaporated. But there are certain things I don't write about. I mean, every memoirist will say that there are certain things that are off limits, I think. I mean, and there's certain, and there's definitely things that are off limits with my husband. It's just not necessarily what you would think. I mean, I write about how our bedroom is in a minefield of erection killers because of the, the pairs of tweezers and my, my spanks that are hitting around there or the hormone replacement too. I mean, and I'll, I'll write about stuff that some other people would find overly revealing. But then there's other things I just don't write about that I can't actually talk about because I, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a line I draw on the sand. My husband has different lines. And that's a funny thing because when we collaborated together, there would be times when not so much in the, well, in the writing, yes, we, I have to say not so much in the writing, but that's not true. There were like, we had some just insanely loud arguments because what was happening was he'd write and I'd write and it was he said, she said. And I'd be like, I can't believe you are saying that. I can't, what? You know, and, and it wasn't about what you'd think it was. I mean, I thought it was very funny when he was saying that he was massaging my neck looking for the mute button as he would try to get into my pants. You know, that was to me funny. But there were other things that I just didn't, about maybe our, our dynamic that I didn't want revealed. And then there were things he didn't want me to say. It was, it was really tough because we each had our own idea 
of our boundaries. I think that there are a few things in this book my husband wasn't really happy I wrote about. <laughs> Such uh, as the night that you ran off <laughs> after a fight? Yes. I Well, you know, I didn't write about that, about spending the night out of the house. You know, and I actually didn't show him the book till I was finished. Um, we talked about it. And I still, I did really think about it. Of course, I do write, you know, stuff about my childhood growing up. And I gave the book to my sister to read, Dangerous. And she suggested that I send a digital copy to our parents who are still alive and change and edit it so they wouldn't be hurt by certain things that are in it. But, of course, even that material as well, my parents are alive, and I actually have not spoken to them yet about if they've read it, and I did not give it to them before it came out because I'm writing about my childhood with more candor than I think anyone has ever spoken about things in my family. I, luckily, there is no money that I can be disinherited from. Let's just put it that way. But I, I don't really know what is going to happen when they read it. I don't think they will be that pleased. And yet I did, I did really think about it and did do many edits, wanting to tell the story that I thought had to be told in relationship to turning 50. I felt I needed to include these memoir elements to make you understand why class and status and money was such a big issue for me coming from a family where we were broke and homeless at one point. And I felt like that is something um, people who, many people who know me in my life have never really quite understood. And it wasn't to make them understand it, but I felt in terms of telling this story, I had to show some of the past in order to tell this, this present experience. Right. And it helps you put that into perspective as well, I'm sure, as you're, as you're well, starting I, I'm to... doing that in my therapy, Ron. <laughs> but in the writing, I'm just trying to say what what needs to be told in this story. And as you know, there's a whole other book, as every every book that comes out, there's another book that I'm not publishing. You know, there's a whole other chapters and books that, that didn't make it to the edit because they just didn't fit into this story. I'm actually hoping to do something else with those stories. Oh. So you know, what would that be like to the extent well, that we can talk about? It? You know, I, I grew up in a family of Southern Jews who came to America to work along the Mississippi. They were fur traders and shipbuilders. And then they had gambling and bootlegging. And I come from a family of outlaw Jews. And I sort of lived the American hustle childhood. And I think it's a particular part of the American dream that I'm that 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 I've definitely been caught up in and I am thinking about writing about and that was some of that material migrated into this book not a lot of it but some of it as sort of an anchoring and then the rest is just a bunch of disorganized pages on my computer desktop which is like a wreck my computer desktop looks like my old desktop used to look it's just a pile of stuff but it was stuff that didn't make it into this book i'm hoping to get the next one well it sounds like there's something there to look forward to but in Thank the you. meantime i see you made an effort is out from blue rider press i've been talking to annabelle gerwich about it i hope you go out and find it you have been listening to life stories and if you are subscribed to this podcast on itunes thank you for that if you're not subscribed it's very easy to find in the itunes store Either way, I hope that you might take a moment to rate and review the podcast, which will make it even easier for the next person to find it. And I hope that you'll join us again for another episode soon. Thanks, and have a great day.